Thank you for downloading the Two Cities Church podcast, where we are pushing back darkness by spreading the good news of King Jesus. And now, here is this week's message from Pastor Jeff Struker. In 1820, a lady by the name of France Crosby was born. When she was about six weeks old, a poorly trained doctor put some kind of salve on her eyes that rendered her totally blind. But that didn't hinder France from doing great things. So in, when she was 15 years old, she was, went to the school of the, the New York Institute for the Blind. And her record so remarkable that they offered her a teaching job after she graduated, which she took and taught there for 11 years. In 1873, 100 years before I was even born, she met up with a friend of hers who was a musician, and she had created a tune, and she, she asked Aunt Fanny, as she was known at that time, what, what, is this, what does this tone say to you? And after a couple of minutes of kneeling in prayer, she stood up, and she said, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And from there, Ms. Knapp had to grab a piece of paper and write down everything that Aunt Fanny, Aunt, um, Fanny was saying to the lyrics. And all of her words lined up right with the tune that Ms. Knapp created. And they created this song, uh, this hymn, great hymn, one of my top five hymns of all time, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. I was going to sing it for you, but I woke up this morning, my voice wasn't. <laughs> Most of y'all caught that joke way before I even got to the punchline, because you know I can't sing, for those that are watching online. And I'm just going to align to him, um, because it's, it's just a wonderful hymn, and it's a hymn that I've been listening to for years, and it's just an awesome hymn that just gives us assurance of what Jesus has done. The, the stanzas, the three stanzas, then I do the chorus. It says, Blessed assurance, Jesus is, Jesus is mine, all with a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washing his blood. Perfect submission, perfect delight, visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels ascending bring from above, echoes of mercy, whispers of love. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I, in my Savior, am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Aunt Fanny went on to create over a thousand songs and four books of poetry and two best-selling autobiography, but the words that stood out, you know, five words that she rose from her feet and lined this hymn was, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Those five words alone just seals the deal um, for me that no matter what setting I mean, when I hear this hymn, it just does wonders for me because of assurance, that one word assurance. And if you wonder what assurance is, I'm pretty sure most of us do, but the dictionary describes assurance as a positive declaration intended to give confidence, a promise, a pledge, full of confidence, freedom, self-confidence, and belief in one's ability. Many hymns and songs are written from the pain or hardship of the author. Even the tones that the musicians create from the music are created out of their, out of their pains. And this morning is no different. Jesus, in verse 12 of John chapter 14, is talking to his disciples. 
and he is giving them assurance that, hey, although I'm going to leave you in a few moments, few days, few hours, and be on a cross, I'm going to give you assurance in these moments beforehand to give you the strength that you're going to need later on to tap into. And that's what he does in this morning. Our big idea is simply Jesus gives his disciples assurance he will never leave them alone. And our first point is simply Jesus answers their, answers their fear. Because when someone is with us and they tell us, hey, I have to go, one of the first things that you, you get within yourself is a lot of fear. Like, what am I going to do next? How am I going to adjust to their absence in my life? And this is Jesus speaking in verse 12 and 13. And he says, truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the, do the works that I do. And he will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So Jesus is assuring these disciples, although, hey, I'm not going to physically be with you, you're not going to be alone. And for disciples, they figure, hey, our job is over. Now we're going to have to go back to doing whatever we were doing before or just not knowing what to do next. Jesus is telling them, I will be with you. Believe in me. So Jesus is encouraging his disciples to rely on him and to trust in him and what he has done thus far and the works that he was going to do. So Jesus didn't expect his disciples to go back and do the things that they once did. He wanted them to go on and do greater things than what he was doing. So when you hear the, the quoting, they're saying, Jesus saying they would do greater works. The first thing most people think about is Jesus telling them they're going to perform miracles of healing, raise the dead, so on and so forth. But Jesus was telling them greater works as far as their influence and their conversion. So instead of them being carrying on Jesus's miracles of healing the sick, raising the dead and healing, healing people, they were going to convert non-believers into believers. And that was going to be their task, their job at that point. Because when you look at the day of Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, more people were saved on the day of Pentecost than Jesus saved his entire ministry. In one event, more people came to Christ on the day of Pentecost than Jesus saved his entire time on earth. And that was the greater works that the disciples were tasked to do. But of course, right now, the disciples are silent because if you look in your Bible, you've seen everything is pretty much in red. Jesus is talking. They are listening because they are fearful. What do you do most of the time? You fear and someone telling you they leave. You listening to everything they have to say. I remember jumping out of the airplane and listening to the black hats talk. I'm like, no, shut up. I want to hear everything they have to say because I want to have a successful jump. Because, yes, you're going to have a little fear, but you don't want to have that fear overtake you. So you pay attention to what the person is saying and speaking. You don't interrupt. And if you, you see this, this is exactly what's happening. Jesus is doing all the talking. They are listening. They're taking into what he's saying. And later on in, the, in this chapter, one of them is going to respond. But you can, you can tell and sense from what Jesus is saying that they are trying to grab what he's saying. And as you, if you know scripture and know what happens after this, you know most of them don't grasp this until later in their lives. So in Jesus' name is very important. And in Jesus' name is not a magic spell of saying in Jesus' name, everything is going to happen, it's going to go the way I planned it. 
one of four things happen when you pray in Jesus' name. He's going to say yes. He's going to say no. He's going to say wait. He's going to say if. Yes and no, we, we all know yes and no, what yes and no means. But when he says wait, example of wait would be Isaac waiting on, I mean, yeah, Isaac waiting on his son to be born. And Jesus promising him that Abraham, that Isaac will be born. That's a wait. When you're saying if, you can look at no further than 1 Chronicles 7 and 14. It said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and so on and so forth. He said, then will I hear from heaven and answer their prayers. So it's something that you have to do in addition in order to activate that blessing with the if. So those are the four things that happens in prayer. But for over 2,000 years, people have been trying to get away from Jesus in Jesus' name. And if you think that's a fluke, look at chapter 9 when Pastor Jeff preached on the man who was born blind. Instead of the people celebrating this miracle, they held a trial to see if he was born blind. So they called his mother to the stand. They called his father to the stand. And after all that, you get to verse 24, and they brought him back on the stand and say, when they finally came to the conclusion that this happened, they said, hey, I'm paraphrasing, give the credit to God. Don't give it to Jesus. He's a sinner. That's how far back this world has been trying to get us to eliminate Jesus from our prayers. Because if you praying to God, there's many gods. So they're okay with that because they can incorporate their God into your prayer because you didn't identify a God. But when you say Jesus, they're like, whoa, 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 time out, time out. We, we don't know if he ever been born. We don't, he was just a common man, so on and so forth, that they will go on with it. But when you're praying in Jesus' name, you're giving credit to Jesus and God the Father in the same breath. And these greater, words, these, greater um, these prayers with passion for the glory of Jesus Christ and God the Father will certainly be in the name of Jesus and the kind of prayer that God will answer. So we all want our prayers answered. We don't just say empty prayers. We want something... I wouldn't say we always want something from God when we pray. Sometimes we just pray in a prayer of thanksgiving to thank him for what he has done, thank him for what he's doing. But on the grand scheme of things, we want him to, we want him to reward us for our faithfulness to him. So you overcome those fears that you pray in Jesus' name. When I would do patrols in Afghanistan, they would tell me, hey, go to this area and it's a lot of bad guys. And, of course, my heart stopped pounding. I had a set of nerves, and of course, you're going in the front of your soul, you can't show nerves. And I will always quote the first part of Psalm 23, Jesus, Jesus is my shepherd. And I don't know what happened. After that, I'm, I just a sense of calm. That's all I had to say, Jesus is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And that, I didn't have to quote anything else in, in Psalm 23. It's just that it's something about that name that, that can move away their fears. And the next point that he makes with, he commands them to put their faith in action. Command them to put their faith in action. This is what Jesus said. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus demonstrated his love for disciples in verse, in chapter 13, when he washed the disciples' feet and he commanded them to do the same. And then he went on in verse 34 and tell them to love one another after the pattern of his love. Now, all of us are going to have a problem initially with loving other people because some people just get on our nerves. That's just, be, that's just my confession to myself. I'm not going to ask anyone else to raise their hand. Some people 
are just agitators and they're good at what they do of getting under your skin. But I would just ask you to not allow that frustration, that initial reaction to, to them to overtake you because we, Jesus said we have to show love. And because the Bible said, be angry and sin not. So Jesus didn't say you're never going to be angry. Say just be angry and sin not. Meaning, don't put your anger into action. Don't act on it. Have that feeling initially and overcome it. Overcome it. And as we continue to grow in Christ, we continue to understand. And for me, when I would be angry with someone for an extended period of time, I'm, I'm a lot better now. I would say I'm healed. I'm, I'm delivered now. But back in my heyday, I would say, when people would get on my nerves, it would linger. And, it would, and then God would, through the Holy Spirit, would show me the different times that God forgave me for something that I did that nobody else knew about. And then I was like, all right, God, all right. Yeah, the only, the only reason that popped up in my mind because of what my anger and frustrations are right now. So I was able to overcome it. But a lot of people think about it. I'm going to hold on to this, and I'm just going to do it. And to me, and also God showed me that you jeopardize your salvation, meaning you can die in your sin and risk going to hell. Now, we all know what the world think about hell. They think it's a place where people party and have a good time. You meet your friends, and y'all just hanging out. But that's not the way hell is described in the Bible. You describe it as a place of anguish and a place of pain. I burnt my arm a few weeks ago. I wore long sleeves, so it wouldn't be shown today. But that burn took a couple seconds for me to move my arm away. Imagine being in hell for eternity, where your whole body is in turmoil. Right now in this room, it's just unbelievably hot today. Now just imagine it was a thousand times harder. We are a little uncomfortable now. I couldn't imagine being a thousand times harder than it is right now. I know I don't want to go through that, so I'm like, you know what, Lord, you're right. I'm giving it up because I don't want to hold on to this and risk being separated from you. But a lot of people believe and think that, that hell is a place for people God rejected. No, hell is a place for people who reject God, not a place where God rejected people. So that takes into equation. So the faith is determined by, our faith is determined by our feet, not by our feelings. Faith is determined by our feet, not by our feelings. What I mean by that is your feelings change. Today you can feel this way, tomorrow you're going to feel, well, in 10 minutes you might feel something totally different. But faith is not determined by your feelings. It's not determined by your walk. It's not determined by your talk either. When faith is determined by your walk, what I mean by walk is how you demonstrate your love for Christ. Are you putting yourself in a place where you are meeting unbelievers? Are you sharing the gospel? Are you praying for those who are less fortunate? Are you finding yourself uh, communicating and introducing someone to Christ that don't know Christ? Are you living a life that God would have for you to live and someone asks you, hey, how are you doing? And some, somehow or another, you incorporate that into your conversation with them. You find yourself in Riverview Apartments. You find yourself helping the sick. You find yourself feeding the hungry. You find yourself just clothing the naked. That's why faith is determined by your walk and not your, your talk, because you have to put yourself in those places where Jesus 
worship and where Jesus operated. And people would say, I don't want to associate with those people. And they say they're believers. And I just like think, I said, obviously you didn't read the Gospels because over 90% of the places that Jesus was were in places where they were sinners. You can point them out on pretty much one hand, the places that Jesus went where just about everybody there were believers. And those were the moments that he was talking to his disciples or talking to Mary and so on and so forth. But the majority of his time was, was spent with the lost. So if we're saying we're going to walk by faith and not by sight, then we're going to find ourselves in some places that we normally wouldn't go. But the source of our obedience isn't fear. It isn't pride. It isn't our desire to earn more blessings. It's love. So it goes right back to love and our love for Christ and what he's done for us in our lives. The third point is I will send you help. That's a good thing. I've been in organizations where they say leaders will say, hey, I got to go, but I'm going to send you someone else. Like, oh, thank you. And this verse, these two verses are example of what Jesus told his disciples. And he said, and I will ask the father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you know him because he remains with you and will be in you. In the New King James Bible, it says most assuredly instead of that, not that first part, not most assuredly, just that um, first part, but he is telling them, I'm sending you another helper of the same kind. When you wreck your car, your insurance company don't give you the money to buy a bicycle. They give you a replacement car. They give you money to buy another car. They don't give you money to buy something different than what you, you lost. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to send you another helper, one of the same kind. And he's telling me it's the spirit of truth. So the greater works described in verses 12 through 14 is impossible without what's described in 16 through 17 because of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is not an it. He's not a thing. Holy Spirit is a he, the Holy Spirit is the third person in the Trinity. It's the, the person in the Trinity that when Jesus said, says something, the Holy Spirit moves. And people attribute it to a dove and to different animals, but he's not a dove. He's, he came like a dove to Jesus when he was baptized, but he's not a dove. So he moves and he operates. And a way that I can describe would be like, Oprah Winfrey saying, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. <laughs> you get the Holy Spirit, you get the Holy Spirit, you get the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit dwells within everyone, not just one person. Because when Jesus was here, it was just him. He had to do everything. So when he left, and he's telling them, I'm leaving, I'm going to send you someone that's going to do greater things. And he's not going to be with you temporarily. He's going to be with you permanently to guide you and to direct you. So Jesus didn't give a, a complicated lecture on the Holy Spirit or the spirit of truth, and neither will I. But he did say the Holy Spirit worked for the good of God, his people, and for his plan. And now the world cannot understand or receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is true. And the spirit of truth is not popular in a world of lies. It's not popular in a world of lies. So when you are born again, the Holy Spirit comes alive in you. So you have a spirit, you have a soul, you have a body. And your spirit, the Holy Spirit that's in you, only speaks the truth. 
when you read your Bible, when you hear a sermon, when you listen to music, your spirit takes in those energies and your soul tells, is in the process of being saved and tells your body what to do. And you slowly see change in your body because your soul is receiving what your spirit is saying. And it translates, and now your thought process changes because your soul is receiving what the spirit is saying to it, thus telling your body, no, we need to do this, that, and the other. We need to stop doing this, that, and the other. But it's a process that is constantly working and constantly growing within the individual. But as far as your spirit is concerned, the spirit is like, hey, if ain't the truth, I don't care nothing else about it. I'm just going to give you the truth. So if I'm saying it, I'm saying the truth. Now, if you're getting it from your soul, mm, it may be the truth. It may be not because he's still battling with what I'm saying. And your body just going to listen to what your, your soul is, is, is saying. And that's how you see a person transfer, transform from being unbeliever to being a believer because they start to receive what the spirit is saying to the soul, thus telling the body to do this and do that. And the Holy Spirit was already with the disciples, but when they, Jesus died on the cross, the Holy Spirit was going to be in the disciples. So with the assurance of things to come, and it should inspire us in the same way it did the disciples who heard it firsthand to erase our fears, increase our faith, and receive help from the Holy Spirit that, that dwells within us. I want to end with a story about a, a pastor who would tell a member of his to pray. And when this gentleman would pray, he would end his prayer by saying, Lord, prop us up on our leaning side. And so the pastor asked him, like, hey, I love the way you pray, but why do you always end with, Lord, prop us up on our leaning side? He said, well, pastor, I'm a farmer. I live on a farm out in the country. And one day when I was riding through my farm, I noticed that my barn was leaning. And I had to do something. So I went and got some, some pine beams, and I propped it up on his leaning side. He said, it still leans, but it's not going to fall. And he said, I got to thinking about the year that I've had and everything that's going on in my life, the turmoil and, the, and the, the people that were getting on my nerves. And the same way that barn almost fell uh, by termites and everything else eating away out of it. People eat away at my joy, eat away at my spirit. And he went on to say, every now and then, I, I, I want to lean back to doing the things I used to do, my old desires and things of that nature. But every time I do, he said, I just pray, Lord, prop me up on my leaning side. And what he was saying to his past and what that story is saying to us is we have the Holy Spirit to keep us propped up on our leaning side. That no matter what we go through in life, no matter what adversities we face, that we have access to the Holy Spirit to prop us up on our leaning side, to help us face the challenges of life. Because those of us in here know that it's certain times of the hour we're going through something and we can't call a friend. We can't call a neighbor. Our spouse may not even be there. That we have to lean on something. We need to communicate. But the Holy Spirit is right there with us. No matter if you're in a hospital bed, all the nurses are gone, family is gone, and you're just thinking to yourself, I'm all alone. If you are a child of God, you are never alone because you have the helper. You have the Holy Spirit to encourage you through life's challenges, regardless of what you face. You have access to tap into that, that Holy Spirit to give you help, to give you deliverance through whatever you're going through. 
and our next steps is something that can help you achieve just that. One is, I will seek God when I'm overcome with fear. Fear is, regardless of how long you live, you're going to have fear about something in life. But God is always there to be there, and we need to seek him through those times. Secondly, I need assurance through the Holy Spirit. And for me, my life, we are doing a study on the Holy Spirit. We've been doing it since January um, through an awesome book that that we use to, to do that. So we are tapping into that. But the thing that a lot of people overlook as far as the Holy Spirit, that any answers to life, anything you're going through in life, either in Scripture as well, you ask the Holy Spirit, and eventually the Holy Spirit will give you the answers that you seek. It may be a week, it may be a month, it may be a year, but if you keep going over that verse, looking over that text, looking over that scripture, God eventually going to give you a revelation that you're looking for um, through the Holy Spirit. And the third, I put my faith in action, meaning that you're going to put your faith in action by the works that you do, regardless of what job you have what environment you find yourself in, that you're going to God, ask God, you pray in the morning, ask God, hey, show me an opportunity that I haven't taken advantage of to share the gospel with somebody else or to live out your life for him through faith. We hope you enjoyed this message. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and to stay in touch by joining our email list through the link in the show notes. Have a great week.